The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to In Tune. We're glad that you decided to listen today. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We have one of the best guests today on the air. You you really do. I have to give this to you. When I was reading through your uh, synopsis of today's guest, I was absolutely amazed. And when you think about this man's family lineage, I don't want to spoil it for everybody because I know you're excited to tell them about it, but this guy is the bomb. He is. Oh, not the bomb. Not the, well, the bomb diggity. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to use the word bomb. He is an outstanding individual. Met him in August. Uh, we were up in a festival up in North City. I'm speaking about the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass, who's also the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. We're talking to Kenneth B. Morris, Jr. Ken, welcome to In Tune. Thank you. It's good to be on with you. When I first saw your picture in the brochure, I saw Frederick Douglass on one side, I saw Booker T. Washington on the other side, and I saw you in between. I was like, hmm, what's this about? How does somebody get their picture with those two gentlemen who are who have such notoriety how does that happen and then it's like oh my gosh look at who this is i was amazed when i saw it i was just absolutely blown away because those two men you know frederick douglas booker t washington i mean they have such a they're bigger than life yes so ken even though you're not here in the studio that makes you bigger than bigger <laughs> also the bomb diggity i hear yeah <laughs> that's right you get to be the bomb diggity bigger than bigger <laughs> We wanted to have you on the show to talk about the uh, Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives and what you are doing as founder and president of that particular uh, 501c3 public charity. But tell us a little bit about your background. And I, I note one of the things that you've written in here is that this really didn't, I guess, being a direct descendant of both of these uh, individuals, didn't really impact you to initiate what you're doing until a certain point of time. I think it was in 2007. But give us a background about yourself, please. Well, I, I think I need to get the um, the obvious question out of the way first. I, I typically get two questions when people meet me for the first time. Uh, the first question is, so you're related to Frederick Douglass and to Booker T. Washington? Well, what do you do? <laughs> and they always follow that up with, and it better be good. So there is a, has been a, a bit of uh, weight of expectation that I've carried on, on my shoulders um, for most of my life. But the other question that I get is, how is it that you're related to, to both Douglas and Washington? So I think that um, I need to explain that first, and then we can, we can jump into the other stuff, because okay. I'm sure your listeners are, are wondering. My grandfather... Frederick Douglass III was Frederick Douglass's great-grandson, and my grandmother, Nettie Hancock Washington, was Booker T. Washington's granddaughter. Uh, this happened on my mother's side, so I'm talking about my mother's parents. My, my grandparents met in 1941 at Tuskegee Normal School and Institute, which is a school that Booker T. Washington founded in 1881. They happened to be on campus the same day. My, my grandmother was born at Tuskegee, but she was, was living in California at the time, and she was home for summer vacation. My grandfather was a surgeon, and he had been commissioned down there by the Veterans Administration during World War II. And they happened to be on campus the same day. They were rushing across to get to the other side, 
and they literally bumped into each other, didn't know that the other descended from an historic family. They fell in love at first sight and wound up getting married three months later. And when my mom was born, Nettie Washington Douglas, she was the person to unite the bloodlines of the families. My mom was an only child, so I'm the first male to carry the dual lineage. And so that's how the two families came together. I can understand what a tremendous burden, a tremendous weight to to carry around, uh, having those two uh, individuals, Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, as your great-great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather. Yeah, your bloodline. Yeah. I can see where people would expect you to be this great orator, educator, activist, all those things. Are you any of those things? Well, I I try to um, be a few of those things. Okay. Um, You know, I remember being about five or six years old, and I spent all of my summers in Frederick Douglass's summer beach house on the Chesapeake Bay in a place called Highland Beach, Maryland. Um, it was a home that was bit, built for him to retire in by my great-great-grandfather, Charles, who was Frederick and Anna Murray Douglass's youngest son. And in that house, there were images of my ancestors everywhere. And there was a larger-than-life portrait of Frederick Douglass or as my great-grandmother would call him, the man with the great big white hair, um, at the top of the stairs. And I remember one evening, I was around five or six years old, and I walked up those stairs and I was looking at that portrait. And all of us that have seen images of Frederick Douglass, we know how serious and stern he looks and, and with that steely glare. And in fact, he became the most photographed American of the 19th century because he understood that he could use this new technology that he came of age with, photography, to make his arguments for liberation and equality. And so he was very strategic in the way he presented himself. He said, you're never going to be able to deny when you look at me that I'm worthy of freedom, I'm worthy of citizenship, and I'm a man. He also said, I never want to look like a happy, amiable, fugitive slave. He was trying to counteract what was out there in the public narrative or the public consciousness that people of African descent we're not worthy of freedom, we're not worthy of citizenship, and, and they were savages, they were better off, in Af- uh, better off in slavery, listen to the happy songs that they sing. And so he was, he was trying to counteract that with these images. But as a young boy, when I would look at his photographs, and I, I saw that portrait at the top of the stairs, I remember looking at him one night and thinking, man, you look mean. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't know you. And as I would try and sneak past that portrait or tiptoe past that portrait, his eyes would follow me. And, and by the time I, I got down to the end of the hallway, I could feel his steel, steely glare really burning like fire on the back of my neck. And I always imagined in my little boy imagination this booming baritone voice bellowing down upon my tiny person and saying, you will do great things, young man. And, and that was a lot of pressure. I, I also started to notice that my ancestors were on statues. They were on money. They were on stamps. Bridges were named for them, schools, libraries. And so everywhere I turned, I, I really started to feel like I was living in this long, vast shadow of two of this country's greatest heroes. I, I can imagine that. It was, it, you know, but you could also, as a child, you could have used that because you could have turned around and said, do you know who I am? And everybody goes, oh, well, you know, that kind of like, well, uh, no, but obviously you must be someone great, so we'll leave you alone. It, well, no, it, it was the exact opposite. <laughs> In fact, the few times that I did tell my classmates um, of my relationship to my ancestors, nobody ever believed me. And I, I never thought that it was a point worth arguing. So that was actually another reason why 
I, I didn't want to talk about it. I mean, if you imagine being a kid and, and your friends and some of your teachers uh, don't even believe you, it's, it's not something that, that you would talk about. And, and you know, I, I don't really remember a time when somebody sat me down and said, we've got something really important to tell you. Um, I've just always known that I've been related to both of them. So at times in my life, I, I have taken that for granted. You know, that's interesting because you know, I, I was going to mention about the portrait, the eyes following you and him thinking that, you know, I have a mission for you. And being related in, in that way, you always would feel some kind of uh, responsibility. And it's interesting that you mentioned that your family really didn't press some things on you like that. Is that correct? It, it is correct. And, and I also had seen what that weight had done to those that came before me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just talked about the happy love story and how my grandparents fell in love at first sight and got married three months later. But there's also a tragic side to the story, and, and that is my, my grandfather, who was brilliant you know, as a surgeon, and he was the namesake of Frederick Douglass, and people expected him to be an iconic leader. And you know, there's only one Frederick Douglass, and when my grandmother was a few months pregnant with my mom, that, that weight of expectation became too much for him to carry, and he took his own life. Mm. And um, so my mother was born without a father and raised without a father. And then when I came along again with this dual lineage, my parents and grandparents, great-grandmothers went in the complete opposite direction, and they weren't going to force anything on me. And so I really did take it for granted for a long time. And I had people that I, I went to school with, high school with, and college with that didn't know of my relationship until I actually started doing the work that we're doing now in 2007. Well, that's that's interesting because you have a degree in uh, religion. Is that correct? That that is correct. In fact, I went back to school later in life. I had um, dropped out of college when I was a sophomore to travel the world as a singer. And my wife and I met in a group called the Young Americans when we were eighteen mm-hmm. uh, years old. And and we're not we've now been married for thirty four years. But um, I we had an opportunity to travel together to uh, Cannes, France, two summers in a row, and spend three months. Um, each summer in France, and so I, I decided that I, I wanted to pursue a singing career, which which I did for a number of years. And then, after I um, got over that, I, I started my own advertising and marketing company, and we catered to the travel industry and, and did a number of um, projects for cruise lines and, and resort hotels, and, and did that for about 18 years before I started doing the work that I'm doing now. But I decided several years ago when I was talking to a group of of sixth graders about the importance of education and how they needed to go to college and and, um, continue their education career. And I just had this light bulb that went off in my head. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, you you never finished school. And so I decided to go back to um, the University of Laverne in in California and um, completed my degree. So that's something that is, is recent. You mentioned that uh, there is the what's the impetus that Providence played in your really founding the the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative. In 2005, I read a National Geographic magazine cover story, and the headline was "21st Century Slaves," and it was an article about what we call today human trafficking, but it really is a modern day form of slavery. And when I saw that article, I, I was shocked, and I. I think I reacted the way most people react the first time that they hear that slavery still exists. And in fact, it exists in every country around the world, including right here in the United States. And it, it really um, 
you know, grabbed my attention, and I, I started to do more research. And I remember what I would call this divine providence in my favor happened one night when I was reading an article about a um, 12-year-old girl who was forced to be a sex slave in the brothels of Southeast Asia and serve as countless men every single day. And I have two daughters who at the time were 12 and 9 years old, so this young girl in, in Asia was the same age as my older daughter. And while I'm reading this article, my mind just starts just running, racing and running, and I can't wrap my mind around what I'm reading. And, and down the hallway, I could hear my daughters getting ready for bed, and they were reading bedtime stories, and they were laughing and having a good time with my wife and, and ready to get down on their knees and say their prayers and get tucked safely into bed. And, and I just had this moment where you know I was listening to that, and I thought, that's what young girls and boys should be doing is getting tucked safely into bed and not having or being forced to service some sick individual countless times almost every single day. And when I put the magazine, uh, the article down and I walked in to say goodnight to my girls, I had this moment where I couldn't look them in the eyes. And, and I started thinking about Roots, um, Alex Haley's Roots, which the first one, not the, the recent one that came out, but the one that ABC produced a miniseries in the 70s. And I remember being younger and, and watching that and thinking, you know, if I lived during that time, I would be an abolitionist. I would be a Frederick Douglass. And I think most people feel that way, that we would fight for those that can't fight for themselves and speak for those that can't speak for themselves. And that's how I felt. But the problem with that thinking was I could never really prove that to myself because I was talking about crimes of the past. But here I was all of a sudden faced with this present-day crime, and I couldn't look my girls in the eyes and walk away. And it really was almost immediate that I just had all of this, you know, something just welling up inside of me that, that I started to understand that I had been on this path through my entertainment career, through my advertising marketing career, my educational career, and that I had this platform that my ancestors had built through struggle and through sacrifice. And my mom and I and, and a friend of mine, a business partner, Robert Benz, who's also one of the co-founders of our organization, we felt we could leverage the historical significance of our ancestry to do something about this modern-day form of slavery. And so we started the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives in 2007. You know, I'm reading from an overview that you, you sent, Ken. It says, we seek to effect change by addressing issues at their very foundations with institutionalized solutions like student curriculum, professional development for educators, and sustained coalition building throughout the community. And you, you go on that like 20 million people live in a state of servitude, Women forced into prostitution, children in factories with little or no wage, men being sold and traded like cattle. And so, so you're advancing freedom, and you're bringing an understanding of, of this uh, trafficking through knowledge and strategic action. How, how exactly do you do that? I know, break down a little bit about the, the training and the curriculum. I know you do some things for the state of California and, and uh, New York City Department of Ed. Uh, and some other things uh, that have been recognized by um, uh, the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, unpack those a little bit for us. Because of my unique connection to history, everything we do starts with history as our guide. And the foundation of the work we do is, is really based off of one moment in time and a story that happened to Frederick Douglass while he was still enslaved. He was born into slavery on the eastern shore of Maryland to a black woman and to a white man, and it was presumed that his master was his father. 
Um, he never had a pair of pants or shoes until he was about six or seven years old. He used to sleep headfirst in an old corn sack with his feet hanging out on cold winter nights because that was the only way that he could try and keep himself warm. He only saw his mother four or five times his whole life, and that's because she lived on a plantation that was 12 miles away. So in order for her to see her son, she would have to work in the fields, picking cotton from sunup to sundown, walk 12 miles in the middle of the night, and she would spend just a few moments with him until he would fall asleep. And then she would walk 12 miles back so she could be back on the plantation by the time the sun came up, because if she wasn't, she was most likely going to face a, a whipping. But he had something happen in his life when he was about eight or nine years old that he wrote about in his first autobiography that he, he called divine providence in his favor. And that was he was chosen from among all of the children on the plantation to go to Baltimore to be the house servant for his master's brother, Hugh Ald. And, and the importance of this move was he was leaving in an environment where he wasn't around people that knew how to read and write, because as we know from our, our U.S. history, it was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read and write. But now he was headed to Baltimore, the big city where he would be around free black children that knew how to read and write, and he would also be around poor white children. But what happened most importantly when he got there was his slave mistress had never had a slave before and didn't know that it was illegal to teach him. She was just a kind Christian lady that saw this bright young boy, and she also had a young son that she was teaching. And so she began to teach Frederick his ABCs. But when his master found out about it, he got angry, and he forbade the, the lessons, and he looked at Frederick, and he looked at his wife, and he said, you cannot teach a slave how to read and write, because if you do, it will unfit him to be a slave. And Frederick heard that message loud and clear, and he looked at his master, and he thought, hmm, if you don't want me to have this, I'm, a, I'm going to do everything in my power to gain it. And he understood right then and there that knowledge is power, which is a message that young people hear today. It's, a, it's relevant today. And education would be his pathway to freedom, so he would begin to teach himself to read and write. When we began to look at how we could address issues of human trafficking today, we looked at the legacy of Frederick Douglass being the great abolitionist and Booker T. Washington being the great educator. And if we combine those legacies, abolition through education, this would be the way that we would go about unfitting communities to allow slavery to thrive and exist by starting with young people, um, teaching them about human trafficking and, and the red flags, labor trafficking and sex trafficking, what to look out for so that we can reduce their vulnerability to being trafficked for sex and for labor. But also, when we start with history, young people can see that there were great heroes and heroines that came before us that struggled and sacrificed and how education was very important in the lives of Douglas and, and Washington. And then when we had the students, the teachers and parents really kind of look through that prism of history, they would learn about contemporary forms of slavery. And then the natural question that they would ask us is, how can we become modern-day abolitionists? How can we go out into the community and really spread this, this information and, and raise awareness about this and get civically engaged and, and do service projects in communities? So that's really how we started out. What we've evolved to now are the projects, some of which you've mentioned, the Protect Project in California, um, the New York City Project, which we, we started in 2013. We're currently not in New York City, but uh, we're in California doing a statewide human trafficking education project, which involves training of educators and other school personnel and a prevention curricula that's introduced in the fifth grade 
It continues in the seventh grade, the ninth grade, and then the eleventh grade. So that really is the institutionalized knowledge that we talk about. It's ongoing education in the community so that, again, we can unfit communities to allow slavery to exist in the same way education unfit Frederick Douglass to be a slave. I, I really like that, unfit. I think that's that's a great description of that because, you, you know, I, I'm reading between 100,000 and 300,000 children vulnerable to human trafficking nationwide. And so these education programs, if you're talking to them, Along the way uh, in school, in elementary school, middle school, high school, you're really giving them and equipping them with the knowledge to stay away from situations, to stay away from individuals or or uh, groups that would draw them into that and, and pull them into that. And, and that education is, is a great, uh, using Frederick Douglass's uh, The Narrative book, a great way to do that. Yeah, and, and the other piece to it that's really important, um, you know, there are a number of organizations that do... Um, training in the classroom or education in the classroom and it's it's a difficult subject to bring in inside of the classroom and and many organizations have um, challenges trying to get principals or superintendents of schools to say yeah we'll let you come in and talk to our our students for two hours because it's such a difficult subject but because we wrap it within the context of history it tends to soften some of those prickly edges, and, and we're able to make a transition into talking about sex trafficking and labor trafficking. It, the other piece to this that's important is that there needs to be protocols in place in communities uh, for responding to disclosures in the classroom. And so one of the things that we do first is we go into a county or a community and do an assessment and, and work with the agencies or the entities that need to be prepared to responding to incidents that are reported. So we work with law enforcement, uh, service providers, district attorney's office, uh, child protective services, all of those entities that need to be prepared to provide a safety net when that um, child or that student has the courage to respond. And so in addition to the, the training of the educators, which by the way, all of this is, is done online uh, because of the numbers of teachers that we need to reach and the more than six million students that fall into those uh, grade levels. Um, we, we do the training online and then the teachers go through a human trafficking 101 module and then a 102 module which is trauma-informed and then 103 and once they go through those three modules then they can um, get training on their grade-specific um, information and then get certified, and then they can download the curricula and then teach it into the classroom. We partner can, with the California Department. Yes, let, let's let we got to take a break real quick. Let's come okay. back to those and and repeat those because uh, I think I want to dissect those a little bit more. I like the the linkage between uh, community and and educational institutions. There, you're listening to uh, In Tune with Arnold Stricker and Ellie Wharton. This is KWRH LP ninety two point nine FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wart, and we're talking to Kenneth B. Morris, Jr., who's the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. And, Ken, I apologize. I had to cut you off there. We were going to a break. But I wanted you to um, restart that conversation about the 101, 102, 103 that you go through with kids. We, in California, our Protect Project, we um, do online training 
for educators and other school personnel. And we offer, in fact, we offer those three modules for anybody in the community that wants to, to be able to take it online. And there is a cost to be able to do that, a minimal cost. But the first module is a human trafficking 101. The second one is a 102, which is a trauma-informed module. And then the 103 module. And once the teachers have uh, gone through those three lessons, then they're able to get training on their grade specific uh, level and then they can go ahead and get certified and download that curriculum and then implement it in the classroom. Uh, we've partnered with the California Department of Education and also the California Attorney General's Office on, on this project and the California Department of Education really was our guide in uh, suggesting those specific grade levels, the fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade, and eleventh grade because the lessons align with their uh, core curriculum in, uh, for the state, and you know, we know we we know that teachers are overburdened in the classroom, and we wanted to be able to give them something that would be a resource, an added resource to, to what they're already teaching in the classroom. And we believe that this this information is helping to supplement um, these lessons that they're already teaching. So the teachers are getting information that will help them to be able to identify and intervene when they suspect that something's going wrong and then the students are getting information that will reduce their vulnerability to being trafficked. You know, and I, I really appreciate the, the linkage with uh, the other community groups and, and talking to them because, you know, things can be identified, but if there's not a support system to assist uh, kids who maybe are identified or situations that are identified, it seems just uh, a little pointless. To a degree, if there's if there's not a support system, everything can go wrong when there's a disclosure in the classroom, and and that's why it's important for other organizations that are interested in doing uh, this type of educational work in the classroom that they think about that safety net, that response that needs to happen in the community when it when a student hears something in the in the information and they start to realize that maybe they're in trouble or somebody that they know is in trouble, and then they have the courage to disclose that to a counselor or a nurse or a teacher, then that teacher needs to know exactly who to call, and then there needs to be a response in place that is coordinated so that all of the stakeholders in the community are working together. Now, did you approach the state of California Department of Ed? Did they approach you, or was it kind of a mutual thing? Uh, was was there a situation in which you thought, well, yeah, it links really well with your curriculum and maybe not with other states, or what was the uh, the reason there? We started in New York City, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in 2013, and we really developed this model. Uh, the only difference between what we were doing then and what we're doing now is that the training happened in person. We would have the experts in the community actually come in and train the teachers, but because of the numbers of people that we need to reach in California and the six million plus students, uh, we weren't. It, it would be my great 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 grandchildren that would be doing the training, trying to get this into the classroom. Uh, we actually partnered with two other California-based nonprofit organizations, Love Never Fails, and then Three Strands Global. So this is a partnership between our three organizations and the Department of Education. And we started a few years ago, and I'm trying to remember now how I, I believe they approached us first through Three Strands Global. I think that's how we got it started. We talked to a, an individual several weeks ago uh, about history and about social studies, and many times social studies and history are um, – for lack of better words, shoved to the corner because, number one, they're not tested. They're not uh, usually you have uh, language, English language arts and science and 
mathematics that are tested for uh, national uh, assessment kinds of things and state assessment kinds of things. But And STEAM and STEM are, are really, really big things. But he, what he was saying was, and I'd be interested in your comment on this, is that social studies and history, number one, give us a background of who we are, where we've been, an understanding of where we are now and identifying issues and being able to think about them, and then in the future being able to make some decisions, being, i.e., you know, Tuesday's a, a day to vote, being an informed voter, uh, being an informed citizen. So social studies and history plays an important part of an individual growing up and understanding who they really are in the larger context of society. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I agree 100%. History is important for a lot of reasons, but I, I like to think history is most important because we need to know where we've come from in order to know where we're headed. And unfortunately, our young people did, today don't know where they come from. And for those of us that descend from people that were enslaved, I understand the reasons why those um, stories were not passed down. When you think about family life and you think about anything that's cyclical, whether it be um, abusing drugs or alcohol or, or mental abuse, it's, it's very hard for people to break out of that cycle and to get healthy. And when you consider that people of African descent have been oppressed and enslaved for hundreds of years, and, and you know, when you introduced me, you said I was the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington, and that sounds like I'm so far removed. But my, my great-grandmother, Fanny Douglas, to whom I was very close, she lived to be 103 years old, and she met Frederick Douglass when she was a little girl. She lived well into my early 20s. Uh, my Aunt Portia, to whom I was also very close, was Booker T. Washington's daughter. She lived to be 95, and I remember being a little boy and, and sitting on my great-grandmother, Fanny Douglas's lap, as she would tell me what it was like to know the man with the great big white hair. And my Aunt Portia would tell me firsthand stories about her father, Booker T. Washington. And so even with all of those greats, I can say I just stand one person away from history. I stand one person away from each man, and I stand one person away from slavery. So for those of us that are descendants of people that were enslaved, when you consider that there was no plan for emancipation when the last of the four million people were freed in 1865, there was no counseling, there was no post-traumatic stress disorder designation. They spent the first few years just trying to reconnect with family that they had been separated from. They didn't own property. Most didn't know how to read and write. So I understand why those stories have not been passed down. But our young people need to know where they come from. And each and every one of them stands on the shoulders and walks in the shoes of those that came before them. I remember I had a 10-year-old girl say to me one time, she said, Mr. Morris, and she was so excited to tell me this, she said, I researched my family tree, and I found that my great-great-great-great-four-great-grandmother was born into slavery. She taught herself to read and write in secret, and then she ran away. She became a successful businesswoman and a philanthropist. And the young girl said to me, she said, so do you know what all of this means, Mr. Morris? And before I had a chance to respond, she said, it means I have greatness flowing through my veins mm. just like you do. And I think when young people understand that they do have greatness flowing through their veins, you see them being more empowered. You see them sitting up straighter in their chairs. And then they're, they're ready to go out and start addressing uh, contemporary uh, challenges and injustice and inequality and, and all of the things. And so those subjects are vital, vitally important to young people 
um, understanding history so that we don't repeat the mistakes, which, you know, we see where we are right now in this political climate that's so divisive. And it does seem like, again, we are repeating the mistakes. So I, I guess it goes back to where do we continue with the learning pattern? I mean, do we bring these new mistakes to the forefront, compare them with the old mistakes, and then try to learn how to not make them again? Or what do we really do to make sure that these things don't continue to occur? We need to have very difficult conversations that we've never had as a country. You know, this country was founded off the backs of um, enslaved Africans, and racism runs systemic throughout through our, 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 our life. And we see it bubbling up and exploding in places like Ferguson and Baltimore, and then the news media com- comes out, they cover it for a few days, and people protest. And then the cameras go away, and then it just kind of simmers back down, and it continues to rage under the surface. Um, the way that history has been taught in this country has been, in my opinion, whitewashed, and the contributions of Native Americans and people of color have been erased from the freedom narrative of this country. So it starts with having honest conversations, and in a way, uh, what we're seeing right now, I think we're shining a light on these issues that have always um, occurred and and we're being forced to have a conversation. And, and this one of the points of this show, not just this particular show, but in tune, is to fill in the gaps of history that people are not aware of. Those those uh, missing pieces of history that are important to give us a complete view of history and understanding of history, and, and which kind of transitions to me uh, with me about the one million abolitionist projects project that you have going on and uh, continuing to fight uh, the kind of uh, mistreatment that occurs between individuals because of color of skin. And tell us a little bit about that One Million Abolitionist Project. 2018 is the bicentennial of Frederick Douglass, and so all year we've been commemorating and celebrating his life and legacy in places all around this country and actually in a few other places internationally as well. And in 2017, when we saw the bicentennial year approaching, we thought, you know, what can we do to really um, lift up his legacy and, and make sure that we get this history into the classroom? So we decided to republish, or not republish, to publish a special bicentennial edition of his first autobiography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave which he wrote when he was 27 years old, uh, which I find amazing. He was only seven years removed from slavery, had never spent one life, uh, one day of his life in, in a classroom, and he writes this classic piece of literature that the Library of Congress named one of the 88 books that shaped America. Uh, being his descendant my whole life, I know that that book and his words have impacted millions of people. I've, I've had people of all ages and all races come up to me Uh, many times with tears in their eyes, just wanting to express their gratitude for being introduced to the book. And they most times remember what grade they were in or that it was introduced to them in in college. And what they want to say is they want to say thank you um, to Frederick Douglass. And when I was younger, it was hard for me to really appreciate or understand the emotional connection that so many had to my ancestors. And so knowing that it can really touch people and impact lives, we decided to publish this special bicentennial edition and make it accessible to young people uh, by plugging in pieces like an introduction from Brian Stevenson, whom you may know as the uh, founder 
uh, and CEO of the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama. He's an attorney by trade, and, and his group works on exonerating people that have been wrongfully convicted for life sentences and death sentences. And he's also a leading voice in talking about the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration. And he wrote this very powerful introduction for us where he starts with slavery and he draws a direct line uh, through 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years separate but equal housing discrimination, race, racial terror and lynching, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, all the way up to this modern form of slavery and new Jim Crow called mass incarceration and, and prison industrial complex. And so we wanted to bring this true history into the classroom. And so we're working to give away one million copies of this book over the next few years. And that, uh, you know, I got to tell you, we, we did pick up a copy when we were when we visited with you in August. Um, my wife and I, and she also got one for her classroom. She reads it to her students and also reads the inscription from you to encourage them to remember, you know, that their history is important and that they can start a legacy of their own and, and understanding who Frederick Douglass was and the history of, of what he did uh, in our country is really important. You mentioned the overseas kind of, of thing that, that's going on and, and how you're working internationally. Uh, what is that collaboration that, that has taken place? When the autobiography was published in 1847, it became a bestseller. And Frederick was still a fugitive slave at that time, and, and th that's the last thing that you want is the notoriety of a best-selling book if you're trying to hide from your master. So he had to flee to Europe for a couple of years as kind of a cooling-off period, but while he was over there, he visited Ireland and the U.K., and he spent um, time lecturing about slavery in the United States. But while he was in Ireland, he um, landed there really in the midst of the potato famine, and as he looked around and he saw suffering of people that didn't look like him, he really started to think about this idea of human rights for all. When he arrived, he was just really fiery and talking about agitating to try and end slavery and to free his brethren from bondage in the United States. But now he sees other people suffering. And he came into contact with the great Irish liberator, Daniel O'Connell, and O'Connell became kind of a mentor to him. And um, really, when he left Ireland, he left with this internationalist uh, view to fighting against injustice everywhere. And, and that's why you see him really be the first statesman of any race to speak out for women's suffrage and women's rights. And he spoke out for the rights of immigrants, because not only did he understand injustice firsthand, but he also understood that he could speak for those that couldn't speak for themselves. And so we've done some projects back and forth with Ireland. Um, we have the Douglas Ireland Project. Um, we communicate with people in the U.K. And there have been a, quite a bit of commemorations, events happening, commemorative events happening in those places during the bicentennial year as well. And, you know, it's interesting, Arnold, um, when I have done research on the suffer the women's suffragette movement, and, you know, they were really wanting to, to give women the right to vote, but they weren't willing to extend that to their African-American sisters. You know, and that at first, that was very disappointing to hear that, that, you know, they were fighting for the right, but they still also wanted to exclude. But it came down to one senator, I think it was from Tennessee, who voted and said, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a, I think it's important to kind of unpack that a little bit, because when, when you were looking at the abolitionists and, and white abolitionists that were fighting to end slavery because it was morally wrong, 
um, just because they thought slavery was morally wrong, they didn't necessarily consider black people equal to them. Frederick Douglass faced this in his dealings with the Garrisonians. They just, when he was a young um, abolitionist and orator, you know, they, they would say to him, just tell your story, Frederick, tell your story, and basically leave the thinking and philosophy up to us. Um, so that's why he would eventually break with the Garrisonians, because he had his own ideas. But um, Frederick Douglass at Seneca Falls, he was the only African-American at that conference. And when they were, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were trying to plug into the uh, Declaration of Sentiments, women's suffrage, and there was a, a conflict between the two ladies. And I don't remember which one was the one that was fighting for it and the one that was fighting against it. Um, but I think it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton that wanted it in there. And so she asked her friend Frederick Douglass to come up and to speak about the resolution. And he argued in favor of it. And that was um, very helpful in, in having it pass. And it, it did pass. And, you know, what you're saying, Ken, still exists today. I don't know about you, but for myself, I do run into uh, situations with people who consider themselves to be quite liberal, um, but they don't seem to think that I have the background, the knowledge, the understanding. You know, it's almost like they feel like they need to come back and reiterate what I have just said to a particular group. So that is something that is kind of almost inbred in our culture to not see African-Americans as having the same level of understanding, knowledge, uh, ability. What are your thoughts on that, or have you run into that yourself? I, I, I run into it all the time, and I'm sure we could do a whole other hour on that. <laughs> yes, so we could. I probably won't dive deeply into that. But, yes, you know, it's, it's history repeating itself, and, and we can see that today with the, um, you know, Women's March and, and just the, um, you know, this idea that there is white supremacy and that black people, um, even liberals, some liberals, don't consider African Americans um, equal, as if, if they have, if black people have equality, then it's somehow taking something away from them. So, yeah, this is something that we deal with all the time. But if I could just say really quickly, because I know we're coming up on the end of our time, I, I, I would be remiss if I hung up and I didn't talk about my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna Murray Douglas, because she's an important piece to this story. I just don't want to talk about <laughs> Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, Anna was born free in Baltimore and she and Frederick met while he was still enslaved and as they were still as they were beginning to fall in love she was really the first person to plant the seed of thought in his mind that he was not meant to be a slave for life and she said as they were falling in love and thinking about a life together that I don't want our children's father to be a slave and had she not planted that seed had she not financed his escape by selling her personal belongings and sewing the disguise that he he wore we may be a very different country today had Frederick not had the courage to run away, and we didn't have um, his contributions. They were married for 44 years. They had five children together and 21 grandchildren. So while we're talking about women's rights and women's suffrage, I want to make sure that I share with your audience the importance of Anna Murray Douglas in this story. We're really proud to announce that just a couple of months ago in Rochester, New York, which is where they spent 25 years of their life together, um, their, their home was a, a station on the Underground Railroad. Anna was a conductor ferrying freedom seekers through their home uh, for those people that were trying to get to freedom in Canada. The school that sits on the site where the house used to stand was just renamed for Anna Murray Douglas. It's the Anna Murray Douglas Academy, so we're very, cool. very proud of that. 
You know, I uh, I want to give our listeners the website fd fdfi.org fdfi.org, and we've got about uh, a couple minutes here, and I wanted to uh, read a couple statements from Frederick Douglass. The life of the nation is secure only while the nation is honest, truthful, and virtuous, and one that we've heard, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Do you have a favorite quotation from Frederick Douglass, uh, Ken? Well, my favorite quote, you just read it, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I have a lot of favorite quotes, but that absolutely is my number one choice. And if I can also uh, point your listeners to the One Million Abolitionist Project website, which is FD, like Frederick Douglass, FD2018.org. Um, it's a lofty goal for us to try and give away one million books, and we really need support and donations to do that. And so if your listeners are interested in making a contribution of any size, they can go to fd2018.org and click on the Make a Donation tab, and then they can go ahead and donate to the project. And we certainly would appreciate it. Kenneth B. Morris, Jr., who is the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. Ken, we thank you very much for being on Intune today. We greatly appreciate uh, your time today, and I want to thank you for your efforts uh, on behalf of our community uh, with what you're doing with the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative and the work, uh, all the work that you're doing to promote um, getting rid of sex trafficking and human trafficking and providing an understanding of history uh, and, a, and a basis for how we should be treating our fellow human beings in our country and around the world. Thank you for your support and um, thank you for having me on and I look forward to staying in touch. Sounds great, Ken. You take care. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you very much, Ken.